Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 21st, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim gives us part two of the history of the Toy Story Mania attraction. Let's get started by bringing in the man who reminds you that eating an entire cake without cutting it counts as only one slice. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Speaking of Schlen, and forgive me for getting my soapbox here, but I want to talk about the issue of Boston cream pie, which is a cake that lies. <laughs> Boston cream pie is a cake. I'm, I'm, what is a Boston cream pie again? It's a cake. It's typically a, a yellow cake with vanilla pudding, followed by a second layer of yellow cake and then a chocolate ganache on the top. But again, for years, Boston cream pie. But it's got a sponge, so yes. it's a cake. Did you ever see 2010? I did not. Okay. There's a wonderful exchange in it. There's They send both Russians and Americans. And, and one of the Russian officers is talking about, oh, don't worry about it. What we're about to do is easy as cake. It's like, no easy as pie. <laughs> and, and later it's like, oh, this thing we're about to do, it's, it's going to be a piece of pie, no piece of cake. <laughs> so the film is worth it just for the cake and pie stuff. But I want to know, who am I talking to about the Boston cream pie lie? Gotta be somebody at City Hall you call, right? I was thinking go straight to Betty Crocker. I mean, she's got to be the eminent authority on baking, right? I think so. Yeah, let's, let's email her. Let me know what she says. Okay, I will. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, and we'll keep that food theme going. Thanks to new subscribers, John M. Jones, Squeaky Kitty, and JLB Magic, and It Might Be Mark. And longtime subscribers, Dory Kimball, Coaster Art Guy, Sarah Lynn, and Matthew Pittman. Jim, these are the pastry chefs at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge who came up with the famous Zebra Dome dessert, a mix of chocolate, coffee, and a marula cream liqueur. Other desserts they tried included the Okapi Cube, a mix of cinnamon, ginger, and carrot cake, and the Tiger Pentagon, which, oddly enough, they turned into Jet Li's <laughs> first film. True story. I think I actually saw that on a double bill with, with 2010. <laughs> wow. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news uh, coming out this week, uh, and every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. This is it. Mm-hmm. On last Monday's show, we said fireworks would return in July, but without special stuff for July 4th. And then the next day, Tuesday, Disney announced that fireworks would indeed return July 1st to both Epcot and the Magic Kingdom. So no special July 4th fireworks. We're getting happily ever after at Magic Kingdom. We're getting Epcot forever. Hmm. at Epcot with uh, with some substitutions. So there are no jet ski performers, but they are adding additional fireworks. So a couple of things. Number one, that probably means that Harmonious begins October 1st. That makes sense. And as I understand it, it's the fact that the Harmonious barges are parked in the middle of the lake. That's why the jet skis have been caught. You know, that, 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 uh, <laughs> because you don't want these uh, hulking black masses at night uh, for the jet skis to go around? I'm just saying. You could call it Epcot Forever Stunt Spectacular and be done with it. What? Oh, oh, not good. Not good. Yeah. That's actually a great point. So how were they planning to run Epcot Forever with the jet skis and then do Harmonious? At some point, you had to cut the jet skis, right? Yeah, but it's always interesting with Disney's safety office. 
Remember the drone show yeah. that was supposed to happen and how they actually okayed a flight path coming off of the, the restaurant there. The Odyssey restaurant. Yeah. Odyssey restaurant. And it's like, we just have to clear that path. And it's like, nope, nope. Safety says no. And so it doesn't happen. Yeah. So. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, other big news. Uh, tons of park availability dropped for July and beyond and the Magic Kingdom extended park hours mm-hmm. in July. Some other operational changes that we've noticed this week. Plexiglass has started to come down on ride vehicles. So like the, everything from the monorail to Jungle Cruise to Soren, you are now seated next to guests as before. And speaking of that, rides are being completely filled. Mm-hmm. So no empty roads, uh, rows. And then on popular rides, you might be seated with others. The uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway pre-show has returned. Uh, I, I love hearing that because that was such a great moment when the explosion would occur and you could then walk through the screen into the cartoon world. Yeah, that was kind of neat. I think also just from being operations perspective, mm-hmm. having the pre-show takes a little bit of pressure off the queue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in- interestingly, the Haunted Mansion stretching room scene has not been uh, back as of yesterday anyway. Hmm. Yeah. So, but that'll, that should be, you know, any minute now. Okay. Okay. Also speaking of uh, spooky things, uh, eight boobash Halloween dates mm-hmm. are already sold out and Disney's added more. So the sold out dates are August 10th. And then October 5th, 8th, 12th, 15th, 19th, 29th, and 31st. And then uh, I guess in response to that, Disney's added three dates in September, the 5th, 12th, and 19th, and two dates in October, the 10th and 17th. So I think when they originally started, Jim, there were 23 of these. And we noted uh, a couple of shows ago that there's something like between 30 and 36 not-so-scary Halloween dates. It looks like we're getting close to that number. We're at 31 now. Yeah, but it's worth noting that they are keeping a wide berth around the actual 50th birthday, October 1st, for some sort of a press event or some sort of media event, that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see when they're all said and done how many dates they do, in fact, end up with for Boo Bash this year. Right. So, sorry, we're at uh, 28 right now, Mm. and I think we're we're at 36. Sounds about Actually, right. So they, they still have the, the chance to add a few more, mm-hmm. especially in October. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That August 10th one is just going to be amazingly hot. We'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. A couple of other reopenings. Uh, Maya Grill opens this Thursday, June 24th. That'll mm-hmm. be good. That's over at the Corner of Springs. Mm-hmm. And then um, big news, the Animal Kingdom Lodge Jumbo House reopens August 26th. Now, Disney hasn't officially said whether dining will be back on the 26th, but trust me when I say dining will be back. On the 26th, and I can't say how I know that, but okay. will happen. Okay. So that makes the Disney Comeback Index, which our friend Matt was on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about at 55.57% as of today. Matt says that we'll get a big bump in the index once these things officially reopen in July too, so look forward to that. Very cool. All right, Jim, some listener questions. We've got a bunch of questions this week, mm-hmm. so we'll go through them. All right, this one's from Lauren, who says, I'm taking my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter to Disney World for the first time in July. She's an early riser, so we plan to arrive at the parks 30 minutes before the official opening. Are there certain rides that run prior to opening, or are the rides operating before the official opening time unpredictable? So a couple of things, uh, Lauren. One, I would get there like 50, five, zero minutes um, at the Magic Kingdom Studios and Animal Kingdom. And 30 minutes is good at Epcot because they're not opening it until 30 minutes before it. Hmm. Um, but in, to your question around what rides are open, it is somewhat unpredictable. Um, but some rides are more likely than others. So at the Magic Kingdom, it's generally going to be Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, where if anything's running early, it'll be then. Mm-hmm. And in Fantasyland, they try and get Seven Dwarfs Mine Train 
um, open first thing. And it, in fact, there are days when that's literally the only thing running hmm. early in Fantasyland. So go there. And if that's not running, some other high priority Fantasyland ride will be like Peter Pan. So your best bet is to go to Fantasyland. Maybe Buzz Lightyear in Tomorrowland will also be open. We've also seen occasionally like Jungle Cruise or Pirates, mm-hmm. but like nothing in Liberty Square, no Frontierland, no Adventureland. And that's because guests don't generally go there. No. First things in the morning. Mm-hmm. For Epcot, Soren, definitely they try and get open early. Spaceship Earth. Check with a cast member though if you're going to Test Track or Frozen, because those rides might not open. Even if they could open, they're unreliable. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that, that they wouldn't open because of mechanical problems. Same thing over at the studios. Slinky Dog is unreliable, relatively speaking. So something like Runaway Railway would work for you and your daughter. And of course, as your daughter gets older, things like Tower of Terror, Rock and Roller Coaster are also good bets. At Animal Kingdom, it's a little trickier. Safari definitely does not open as early as like Flood of Passage. It's possible something like Dinosaur would be open, but like Navi River Journey doesn't open until 15 minutes before the park is open. So you're, I don't know that it, uh, if you're not going to go on Flight of Passage, you're not going to go on Dinosaur. You're not going to go on Everest. I'm not sure that you need to get there more than like 15 minutes in advance right now. Yeah, that, that makes helps. sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. We, um, we've tried to look at all of these things, you know, for touring plans because with the parks opening, you know, early, we're trying to get as many things out of the way as possible before official park opening. And the thing that we've determined is from day to day, it just varies. All right, here's a question from Mark. Uh, with the discussion of ride efficiency and capacity, it got me thinking about how efficient the rides actually are. For example, if we say Pirates is 100% efficient when each seat in every boat is taken and the boat leaves bang on the dispatch time, what do the rides usually run at? 90%, 80%, 70%? Always been curious how this is related to capacity too. If space has a capacity of 1,800 guests per hour, realistically, how many does it actually churn through? And as a follow-up question, why do single rider lines exist? <laughs> why are any of us here mark why are any of us here <laughs> so there are jim you know this there mm-hmm. are two capacity numbers right there's the theoretical hourly capacity right so in mark's example that's the scenario where every seat is filled and the ride leaves bang on the dispatch time right so that's you know if everything goes right what could we get out of this ride mm-hmm. and then there's the operational hourly capacity um, which is what happens in the real world when guests take a little longer to get into a ride vehicle or your game of ride vehicle Tetris results in some seats not being filled. So we know a ride like Space Mountain, as an example, mm-hmm. can hit at least 1,827 riders per hour because we've counted that, uh, that many people exiting the ride in about an hour. So Space Mountain's operational capacity is at least 1,827. What's theoretical capacity, Jim? Isn't it somewhere between 1,900 an hour and 2,000 guests per hour? Yeah, that's what I would guess. Somewhere, okay. somewhere in there, between 1,900 and 2,000 based, mm-hmm. on, based on that. And that would mean that Space Mountain is running uh, 90%, uh, 90% of its theoretical hourly capacity mm-hmm. or more. And I think most rides tend to operate at 90% or more of their theoretical capacity when they're running well and for a couple of reasons. One is a ride like Space Mountain was built in the 70s. Yes. Back when, you know, 11 million people visited the parks. Mm-hmm. Now we're, you know, in a normal year, we're closer to 20 million. Mm-hmm. So it has to run mm-hmm. at its, uh, you know, full capacity pretty much all the time just to keep up with demand. The rides that don't hit that on a day up, day in, day up basis, like the rides that can't run at 90% mm-hmm. are the rides that tend to break down a lot. So like Frozen Ever After, Test Track, we just talked about. Mm-hmm. 
Tower of Terror, Rise of the Resistance, they're not running at their 90% capacity. Yeah. I was just talking with an Imagineer friend, but Web Slinger at the Avengers campus at, at, yep. at, at California Adventure. Evidently, there's this argument going on at, at, at WDI to the effect of this whole immersive world thing and the notion mm-hmm. of you put so much detail into a queue, so much detail into a load on load area. And the problem is that the guest will slow down to take in this detail. Whereas you're trying to load people onto a ride to make a certain hourly capacity. And the more detailed the queue, the less likely you're actually going to make your theoretical. Because of- and you see this, you see this in the Peter Pan queue in the Magic Kingdom. Mm-hmm. As you walk through the house, yep. they've got those little spots where like pixie dust falls on you and things like that. And it it stops the queue dead, not only for people to see what the effect is doing, mm-hmm. but for the inevitable Instagram selfie. Yeah. You know, that happens. And the Peter Pan space that you're talking about there was, was part of the scene one program. (laughs) That's why, that's why we didn't get more. That's it. Exactly. (laughs) The budget cuts. Yeah. Yeah. Then the budget cuts. Yeah. There we go. So, yeah. So that's, I think that's a a great explanation. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to single rider lines, Mm -hmm. they probably add a couple extra percent Mm -hmm. onto the hourly ride capacity. Again, it's, uh, it's the passenger Tetris thing Mm -hmm. on big rides like Expedition Everest. If it's one guest per minute. It's probably closer to two, maybe even three. Mm-hmm. That's like a 4% boosting capacity. And for a theme park operator like Disney, where you're trying to squeeze every minute out of wait times, 4% is huge. Mm-hmm. So that's why um, single rider lines exist. Mm-hmm. And I think they're uh, they're back at Universal, right? Disney hasn't brought them back yet, but Universal has. Yeah, but if Disney is not looking over its shoulder at what's going on at Universal these days, I mean, for example, you, you saw... For the opening day of Velocicoaster, that as people- Free churros. Free churros. All right. It would it would never happen at Disney. I Not know. A, for, for a variety of reasons. One is they just don't have that mentality, right? There's just, <sighs> it's just not in, it's not built into their number crunching DNA to hand out free food. I get that. To, I to really, regular day guests. I yeah. really do. But it's just one of these things when you think about all of the rather negative press that Avengers Campus got for line management and, and, and that sort of thing. And on the other hand, Velocicoaster was all of this glowing. It, looked, I, it was a great ride and I got a free churro. And it's just sort of like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but they handled, they handled the previews really, really, really well. Mm-hmm. It went very smoothly. For, like I was from the time I left my house to the time I got back to my house mm-hmm. for the Velocicoaster preview it was under two hours. And I had to drive on I-4. To, to Universal, which which is a testament to a lot of things there, right? I have spent two hours on I-4 just trying to get from SeaWorld to Disney Springs. So that's stunning that you pulled that off. Yeah. And, you know, the we say this a lot, right? But when it comes to things like, you know, crowds at you know, the opening of rides, mm. you know, it, it shouldn't be surprised to anyone that things are opening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's just, it's it's either a lack of planning or, or something. They just don't care, right? Mm-hmm. One's one or the other. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, it could be demand too, right? It could be that we don't want to go through the, that's actually an interesting question. We haven't talked about this, but like, do you think that, that the opening of Avengers Campus was a, re- a reaction to let's not do Galaxy's Edge again, where we required reservations 
and then no one showed up. Yeah, but it's like, does and it, it could be, it could be it. No, but at the same time, do we have to go through these wild swings of the needle? I mean, you know, <laughs> th- this is a, a theme park company that has existed for you know, since 1955. You know, that they, yeah. they have files and files of, of, of how people react and how crowds move. And it's yeah. like, really? And you didn't anticipate when people would stand in a six hour long line with their phones that they wouldn't say bad things? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not a 10 hour line, Jim. So. All right, fair enough. All right. Here's a question from, uh, from Chad. Mm-hmm. I've heard in your Disney dish podcast and other places about people showing up and getting offered upgrades to other resorts. Does using direct to room prevent this from happening in the hopes of this being an option? Should I check in at the front desk? Mm-hmm. All right. So there are a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. So the, this, this is, um, you book a room at a Disney resort and you get moved to another resort, at least the equivalent sometimes an upgrade. And we saw this happen in the spring with people booking at like the contemporary and getting moved to the Grand Floridian or uh, booking at a moderate and getting moved to the Grand Floridian. And generally what it is, is um, it's this practice, right? Mm. Disney will book all of the available rooms at a particular resort. So let's say all the, you know, all the rooms at Pop Century or Art of Animation, and they will run out of rooms to sell at that price point. So what they'll do is they'll take some people who have paid you know, full price or nearly full price and move them to another resort at no cost so they can keep selling those value rooms. It basically adds inventory, right? So let's say that there are, and I'm making up a number here, let's say there's a thousand regular priced rooms at, at Art of Animation, right? So not the suites, but the standard Little Mermaid rooms. Mm-hmm. And let's say Disney knows they're at like 115% of capacity. Like They've actually sold 15% more rooms than they have for a particular set of nights for art of animation. They'll take 15% of the people who have booked, maybe even 20%, right, just to give them a little extra space. So they'll take one out of every five people and they'll say, you know what? We're going to offer you an upgrade to you know, Coronado Springs or to Caribbean Beach, in some cases to a, uh, to a deluxe resort. No cost to you. It's a better resort. It's a bigger room. right? Please take it. And what that allows them to do is to get back to full capacity without having to turn people away. And if they actually do a little bit more than that, it allows them to keep selling value rooms. So if you've got a bunch of customers who are willing to pay value room prices, but not moderate room prices, it keeps the revenue rolling in, mm-hmm. but it, and it doesn't, uh, and it doesn't incentivize people because it's random, right? You don't know who's going to get the upgrade. Um, so it allows us to keep selling rooms that technically they don't have. And I do think using direct room, prevents this from happening. If you're looking for an upgrade, let's say you just want an upgrade when you get there, Mm -hmm. um, definitely check in at the front desk. Okay. Excellent advice. These days, like um, I think Pop Century, I think Art of Animation, like over the next couple of weeks, they're basically at 100% for the inexpensive rooms. So they're probably already doing some internal upgrades, moving people to different kinds of rooms. I don't know how how likely an upgrade is. Uh, It's going to depend on your resort. Like if you're at even the Grand Floridian's kind of busy right now. Mm. You know, if you're at like Coronado Springs, you might have a decent chance, right? Or if you're at like Saratoga or Old Key West, might, upgrade might be available there. But um, but you know, the value resorts, especially with uh, sports and music not being open, yeah, that's going to be tricky. We'd love to hear from any folks who actually do get the upgrade, and in particular, which hotels this is happening at. The process that Disney uses uh, internally is known as walking, or walking you from one resort to another. Mm. I think what did we hear last year? Jim, at the in the during the um, the pandemic, as things started to improve, people were going from like, was it Pop Century to like Kadani? 
Yeah. It was it was some weird upgrade where it's like mm-hmm. it's the best $99 room I've ever bought in my life, like that sort of thing. Yeah. I remember you talking about the folks who suddenly found themselves at the flow and you know just sort yeah. of, sir, could you stop singing in the lobby? <laughs> you know, just exactly. <laughs> Moving on up. There we go. All right. Uh, here's a question from Ted. Mm-hmm. I love the Disney dish, especially when you talk Disneyland logistics because it's my home park. The family and I visited Disneyland in California Adventure last week and loved Adventures Campus but it's definitely missing that big e-ticket ride. Do you or Jim have any updates on the big Avengers Quinjet ride? Jim? Okay. First of all, I know there has been a lot of talk about the fact that, oh my God, how dare the Imagineers build the entrance to the attraction and put the Quinjet there, but not build the actual ride. And I, I want to direct your attention to December of 1962, where the facade of the Haunted Mansion suddenly appeared behind the fence. And and sat for what, seven years? Damn near, damn near August of 1969. So this sort of thing is not unprecedented. And we waited, as you mentioned, almost seven years and got a ride that to this day is beloved. So this has happened before. So please sit at home and untwist our knickers. (laughs) On the other hand, I, I have heard from friends in Imagineering one of the reasons this project got stopped is, of course, you know, we, we, we tragically lost Chadwick Boseman. And remember that the original conceit of this deluxe Avengers Campus e-ticket was, you know, you were going to take the Quinjet to Wakanda and join the Avengers as they put down an invasion. And frankly, what the Avengers want to do at this point is the very first Black Panther film without Chadwick Boseman, uh, in fact, it's called Wakanda Forever, begins production next month. And it's due out in theaters on July 8th, 2022. Imagineering wants to see how the public reacts to a Black Panther film without Chadwick Boseman before they then commit to, okay, let's do another story set in Wakanda. Now, Marvel Studios is doubling down on Wakanda, that they've got a, a limited series in the works for Disney Plus that's set in that mm-hmm. world. So Marvel Studios believes there is a future in that franchise. Imagineering would just like to see ticket sales and audience size numbers to to back that up before they they commit to this super deluxe ticket. And if that's not the case, you know, there's there's five thousand Marvel characters. You know, there might be another way to go with the super deluxe ticket. All right, so we'll uh, we'll wait and see. That's it. So yep. we're still a couple of years away from. Yeah, we are. I will tell you that from what I'm hearing, we're not going to be waiting six and a half years before we see a show building behind that facade and, and can get a ride experience. But could it be four years, five years? Yeah, maybe. All right, and a question from Jeremy. Mm-hmm. For no other reason than I was thinking about it with our family, I'm interested to know your thoughts about the possibility of annual passes going away here at Walt Disney World. That honestly is not what I'm hearing. I mean, we're not talking about two theme parks where 70% of the guests come from 100 miles away. I mean... Yeah, it's a different ratio, yeah. Yeah, that's it exactly. So could they make tweaks and and fixes? I mean, Bob Chapek is very, very much about every revenue stream being explored. So yeah, I think the Walt Disney World annual pass program could get looked at hard and could see some changes, but... Certainly not anything like what's going on in California right now with, you know, the loyalty programs and that sort of talk. Yeah, we still haven't seen anything definite about what's going on in uh, in Disneyland, right? And there's no there's no timeline for annual passes to return there. No. 
Everything I'm hearing is, look, we're just trying to get through this summer. Come back and talk to us in the fall. And I still think we're going to see uh, annual passes come back to world sometime. In, I, I thought it would be this month, mm-hmm. June. And if it's not this month, it's definitely going to be before October 1. So we'll see. Okay. All right. Last question is from Alex, who says, Jim and Len, what percent of royalties would you like if I start selling t-shirts that say, that's it exactly, Len? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that, that, <laughs> I have officially become a cliche with feet. Is that what he's saying? You know, like, did we, we did we ever tell the listeners that we wanted to come up with a sell t-shirts that just said the word literally on it, and then you know the the podcast stuff on the back? <laughs> didn't we talk about doing a thank God it's Schmerz Day shirt, but also <laughs> we did. you know with the notion of of benefiting the cast members and the food pantries? Yeah, we have to get serious about this stuff at some point. We, have to, we merch. That's what we. That's what the show lacks. Merch. There we go. So. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Jim continues the history of Toy Story Mania. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Jim, when we left off last week talking about Toy Story Midway Mania, we had the Imagineers getting ready to do a ride-through shooting gallery for Paradise Pier that was based on cannons with pull strings that came from an old Disney Quest ride, right? Yep. And it was going to be built around Mickey Mouse. Yes, yes. As far back as the fall of 1955, people were clamoring for uh, some sort of ride show and attraction built around Mickey Mouse. And 65 years later, with the opening of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Hollywood Studios, we finally got that attraction. Kind of killed me that it opened on March 4th of 2020 and then had to close 11 days later because of COVID. But we did finally get it. And the reason that it was the fall of 55 rather than July of that year when Disneyland first opened, that Disneyland began to have a Mickey Mouse problem was because the Mickey Mouse Club TV show started airing on ABC October 3rd, 1955. It's the hour-long edition of the show. It Mm -hmm. runs Monday through Friday. And it's right after kids get home from school. So folks are arriving at Disneyland Park and and going to the guests. They say, well, where's Mickey? And it's like, if you watched the Dateline Disneyland, that that 90-minute long TV special, that ABC broadcast, Mm -hmm. the characters that you saw running up Main Street USA – those weren't Disney's. Those were from the ice the ice capades. Yeah, we, we talked about this on a previous show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and but here's the thing: in 1949, Walt signs a long-term agreement with the ice capades folk. And the idea is with each edition of the ice capades, and 
John H. Harris, the gentleman who produced the show, he would send a new version of the escapades out on the road every year. So the idea is that each of these shows going forward would have a lengthy segment, you know, built around Disney characters. So first edition we saw do this was the uh, 1950s edition of the escapades. That's when they, they introduced their Walt Disney toy shop number. And so they had, you know, performers dressed as Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Pluto. By the way, Len, those last two outfits were two persons skating outfit. Yeah. Dumbo's a big outfit and you're not going to do any, uh, any sort of triple Sal Cal. In, uh, <laughs> no, no, in a, no, you are not. But of course, by the, the 52 edition, they've gotten a little more sophisticated and they're doing a full 20 minutes now. Wow. Based on Cinderella. I mean, they focus on one film and Disney was actually providing the soundtrack and the voice actors. So it was ridiculously authentic. 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk about attention spans back then. Wow. 20 minutes in an ice cap, it's a 1950 versus two plus hours for Disney on ice. Now, you know, the, the yeah. arena show that, well, is supposed to begin running around the country sometime soon again. So I guess we should check on that. So we jump back to the fall of, of 1955 and, and people are, Hey, I want to see Mickey. And it's one of these things where it's like, I can't call the ice capades because they just launched the latest tour and frankly, they need the costumes and there isn't the money yet to plow into Disney, making its own costumes for Mickey mouse and the characters at the park, because this is after the summer of, of 55. And I don't know how many of you remember the stories about how, Southern California had a ridiculous heat wave that started in August and lasted in September and attendance fell through the floor. So it's like, okay, what what else can we do with Mickey Mouse? And I was like, well, we could explore that Mickey and Minnie Mouse Island idea. Now, this lens, this dates back to an April of 1954 description of Disneyland Park that Nate Weinkoff, who was the original general manager and vice president of Disneyland, Inc., at Walt's insistence, he wrote a 12-page document that went land by land through this yet-to-be-built family fun park. Now, the following description can be found on page 11 of the Disneyland story, and what I'm about to read, this direct quote from, again, what Mr. Weinkoff wrote on April 20th, 1954, it contains some language that might upset a few folks. It, it's upsetting. Let's, let's call it what it is. It's okay. upsetting. Yeah, it's a racially <laughs> offensive word. So, if you want to read this for yourself, uh, there's a scan of the full document over at craphound.com, which Len pointed out, that's Cory Doctorow's uh, website, yeah. right? Okay. Yep. All right. So anyway, let's get started with this description, a section from the Disneyland story, which begins with Nate's description of the old paddle wheel riverboat. This boat will be 90 feet long and will carry approximately 125 passengers. Here, you will take a trip on the rivers of America, and as you start up the river, you will see a point of interest on the embankment of each bend. One setting will be Mount Vernon, another New Orleans or Natchez, or a cotton plantation where Uncle Remus and some singing. Um, yeah. Okay. There's a reason why we've never seen this version of the, uh, no. And, and uh, by the way, that lend to his credit, when I shared this document that I did his due diligence and we found <laughs> a, you were like, why have we never seen this before in any other prospectus? And it's because somebody clearly realized. Yes. This yes. Is and, not good. and, and the, yeah. the very same document got rewritten four and a half months later, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment, folks. Okay. Yeah. So this will be a riverboat ride to be remembered, not 
only will you have an enjoyable trip, but will also be historically correct. Said by a man who wasn't there, but go ahead. (laughs) There we go. All right. You will notice an island in the river. This will be the Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse Island, the headquarters for all members of the Mickey and Minnie Mouse Club, an international organization. When a member arrives at Disneyland, they must find their way to the treehouse that will be established on the island. The only way to get there is through an old Tom Sawyer tunnel under the river that will bring them to the trunk of the tree. After they have registered, they can then look out through the limbs of the tree. These limbs are telescopes and periscopes and can see all over Disneyland. That's not a terrible idea. No, that's not a terrible idea. But again, just to get back to that language, folks, want to stress this was Nate Weinkamp who wrote this description, not Walt. And Nate died back in January of 1983. So at this point, it's really hard to get any additional information about that whole cotton plantation, Uncle Remus thing. But plants for Disneyland were very, very dynamic back in 1954. And as I mentioned earlier, Lend found a later version of this prospectus, which was written September 3rd, 1954. And some very interesting differences from the April description of the frontier rivers of American Express to now. Like the version uh, Len found starts off with, at the end of Frontierland, you will find Paul Bunyan's longest little bar with the tallest glass of root beer. At this point, you can walk over to the pier and get on the 105-foot paddlewheel riverboat, which can carry approximately 300 passengers. This will be a trip that will be well, well remembered as you will be taking a ride on the rivers of America You will be able to identify the river you are on by the historical points of interest that will be on the embankment in scale. As you leave Frontierland, you may see Mount Vernon on the first bend in the river. The next one could be New Orleans, Natchez, Mobile, or any other point of interest that is well known as a historical river landmark. So, four and a half months' time, we've seen the length of the Mark Twain jump from 90 feet to 105 feet. We've seen the capacity of this ride jump from 125 passengers per trip to 300 passengers, and all mentions of seeing a cotton plantation along the banks of the river and Uncle Remus and certain other parties singing has been cut. You also notice no mention of Mickey and Minnie. Yeah, what happened there? Yeah. Think about it. It's the fall of 55. You know, the park has been operating for a few months at this point. And and Walt now realizes in order to build that super cool sounding secret tunnel that Tom Sawyer built under the rivers of America, which would allow Mickey Mouse Club members to secretly enter the, the treehouse. Okay. Construction would involve first draining the rivers of America, then digging mm. the actual tunnel under the riverbed, then doing weeks and weeks of tests to guarantee that this new underground, more importantly, underwater passage over to Mickey and Minnie Mouse Island is a watertight seal. That's the thing about parents, man. You put you put their kids in a, uh, a flood-prone underground tunnel, they tend to get antsy, especially when they paid you to get into it. Yeah. Go figure. Go figure. Yeah, All right. And, yeah. and also, this is at a time when Disneyland is struggling to get its arms around what its actual hourly ride capacity is. And the idea of taking the Mark Twain offline for months at a time. At that point, the Mark Twain was the second highest capacity ride in the park. It could could handle 1,500 guests an hour. Yeah, and that's a lot. That just wasn't an option. I wish they'd gone ahead with the construction of the Paul Bunyan longest little bar, but in a way, Lynn, they did. 
Do you remember the Mile Long Bar? Was oh, that where um, Pecos Bills is now? That's it, exactly. I used to come out of the Country Bear Show, and there, by the, the exit, was the Mile Long Bar. And in fact, when the Disneyland version of Country Bear Jamboree opened in March of 72, they too had a Mile Long Bar. And, and the cool gimmick of this is that you had a regular bar that had the great brass poles and the polished wood, but to either side of the, the end of the bar, there were these mirrors. And they pulled off this amazing effect where, because you had a mirror reflecting a mirror, the bar just seemed to go on for days. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That illusion was developed for the Paul Bunyan Biggest Little Bar back in 54. And it took two decades, Len. But again, no good idea ever dies at WDI. And while we're talking about good ideas and Paul Bunyan-related stuff, back in 73, After Bear Country opened at Disneyland Park, the Imagineers really wanted to continue to develop that corner of the park, the northwest corner of Disneyland. And what they proposed doing is because, remember, there was that forest right behind Country Bear Playhouse. And, you know, they were thinking, wow, you know, who goes into the forest? You know, explorers, frontiersmen. And so it's like, that's where we need to build the land of legend a place that would celebrate American folklore. Initially, they talked about putting two dark rides in here. Uh, One of them, actually, what's funny is it's the Legend of Sleepy Hollow ride, which was initially supposed to be built at Walt Disney World in Fantasyland. It's going to be the attraction that sort of served as the the gateway from Fantasyland to go then go down the hill into Liberty Square to to where the Haunted Mansion was, was located, which that version was supposedly a mansion built around uh, the Hudson River Valley. So that being where Washington Irving had set the story of of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, it's like, cool, we, we get kind of a mini haunted mansion land. Ooh. So they had that project already developed. Uh, they also had a, a ride that actually used the Peter Pan mechanism. It was the saga of Windwagon Smith. And the idea was you were going to get caught up in a tornado and seemingly fly through the air. But But of course, every land needs a restaurant. And what they decided they were going to build as part of the land of legend was the Paul Bunyan Buffeteria. (laughs) I can imagine where we're going with this, Jim, and I'm all in right now. The whole gimmick of this restaurant is everything is oversized portions because these are the cooks, the, you know, the, the guys who worked in the, the log camps with Paul, and they now don't know how to make small sizes of anything. Oh, God. So you'd get a supersized omelet or a giant set of pancakes that you'd then split with the family. And you know that when Disney does this, because they do it in a few places, mm-hmm. that the food is legendary, like the, the cinnamon rolls at Gaston's, right? There you go. There you go. But obviously, again, they ultimately don't go forward with the land of legend. And, you know, the, the right. Paul Bunyan buffeteria guy idea goes back into the flat file until the folks who were working on the Avengers campus in Anaheim. And they're looking around for, for unique food ideas. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That Ant-Man movie where things get big and things get small. We did that Paul Bunyan buffeteria idea. Is, could we do that again? And so 
That's how we got the Pim's Test Kitchen that just opened with its ridiculously supersized chicken sandwich or the crazy huge pretzel. And, and didn't Guy Seliga, you know, uh, yeah. get, get a- guy guy participated? It's like a hundred bucks for a uh, is it shawarma? Yeah. Oh well, I did. I think they do a Pimnini. That's the hundred dollar sandwich that actually yeah. feeds eight people. But this was proposed in 73 and we finally saw it in, in, you know, 2021. So, you know, I mean, sometimes it does take 50 years, but ideas eventually do make it out of WDI. That's fantastic. And it's, it, you know, we're, the, those sandwiches are good for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. One is if you, if you have, have like, like you said, six to eight people, mm-hmm. it's basically the same cost oh, sure. as a, as a regular mm-hmm. counter service meal, but it's so photogenic. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah. Well, and and we now live in this age where if you don't have pictures, it didn't happen. And you know, it didn't happen exactly. You know, so you're you're documenting your meal and you're making your friends and family of enthusiastic about also going to experience the Avengers campus. So it's win yep. win win. Anyway, back fall fifty five. Walt didn't have decades to placate those rabid Mickey Mouse fans. He, they wanted FaceTime with their favorite mouse right then and there. So what did Walt do? And how does that eventually get us the Toy Story Midway Mania? Come back next week, folks, for the next installment of this Disney series, and and we'll get you there. Okay. These shows just end up making me hungry. I don't know what it is. Everything they've shown for the the, the Pim Test Kitchen looks amazing. I'm a yeah. little concerned about the stories coming out about how people are getting access to that restaurant. But again, you got to allow. It's the first couple of weeks. Yeah. Everything's just so new too. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I'm I'm hoping they will figure it out. Because you know, want to get in there and eat an oversized chicken sandwich. When they say you know, serve six to eight, that's I see that as a challenge. <laughs> Jim, you and me, we know the stories of you and and the chicken at the the, the Grand Floridian, and it's you know, I was, I was you're there in training. Week, you're in training, Len. It's true. So, I, was, I actually went there last week, last Friday. Did you? And, uh, and ate it. It was delicious. Yeah, it was fantastic. Wow. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish Show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of World of Color and Disney California Adventure. On next week's show, we finish up this story of Toy Story Mania. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be giving out samples of his triple cream paniolo and artisanal chev at the 13th annual Vermont Cheesemakers Festival, Saturday, August 8th and Sunday, August 9th, at the Coach Barn in beautiful rural Shelburne, Vermont. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.